It is my pleasure to introduce our next speaker. Dr. Lester Farner grew up in Chicago area. He attended the University of Illinois at Chicago Medical uh, I'm sorry, University of Illinois at Chicago Medical School. He completed residencies in pediatrics, then dermatology at Duke University. He practices everything dermatology in Champaign, Illinois at Christie Clinic, and he supervises two physician assistants, myself and Eleni Moradis. Please help me in welcoming Dr. Farner. Big hugs. Thank you. The topic was suggested that I do pediatric dermatology. I don't really, even though I did a pediatric residency, I don't consider myself a full-fledged pediatric dermatologist anymore because I uh, do everything. Is this a little loud or feedbacky, or is it just the way it sounds? It's okay? All right. It's just my voice. Um, they, I was suggested that I give you pearls, and I called them survival tips instead of pearls. I've just, it's one of my little bugaboos. You know, I like pearls as jewelry. Pearls before swine always comes to mind, and I've got too much respect for to give pearls because you're uh, too dignified for all that. So the topic is, oh my goodness, it's a child, and unless you really are comfortable seeing a chi uh, children, and uh, it's daunting because it's a whole different task compared to seeing an adult. And it might help if we break down why it's challenging so you can sort of manage this in real time and say, oh, that's why it's such a big problem. Oh, this is nice. Now, if I point the laser pointer at this, it doesn't show up there. So I'll have to point up there, and you people over there won't know. So the, oh my goodness, it's a child, breaks down actually into several different topics. There's the, uh-oh, it's an infant. It's a brand newborn baby. And uh-oh, it's a little babe in arms and a toddler. Uh-oh, it's a teenager or a school-age kids, because each of those have their own uh, issues with which we have to deal. And indeed, the challenges and issues vary significantly with age. This is not, uh, uh, you know, the difference between a 40-year-old guy and a 50-year-old guy, which is simply sort of the affinity of the couch. Um, there are uh, different expectations at different ages. There are lots of relationships in the room. If I'm in the room with a doctor, as a patient, it's her and me, him and me, whatever, and guess what? That's all they've got to satisfy and figure out. But you're looking at grandma, and she's got old world concerns, and you're looking at mom, and then is dad active, hovering, and anxious? And of course, nobody wants to be left in the waiting room, so somebody'd have to watch the toddler. So they got the baby, and then there's the three-year-old who's going through the drawers and playing with the scalpel blades. It's like, no wonder people say, oh my goodness, it's a child, because you don't know who or what's in the room. More problematic is, of course, or maybe most, is the dermatology systemic issues which are going to come up. You've all looked at the 50-year-old with little streaks on the fingernails and little ridges, and they say, does this mean my kidneys aren't working in my liver? And you've seen enough of this that you say, no, 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 I read that too in the Inquirer, and you know, I'm sure you're okay, it's just a little whatever. With children, it's not so simple, and the issues and the anxiety and the risks are that much higher. So you've got to know 10 times as much. It's a whole new field of medicine. I had to learn geriatrics after doing pediatrics because dermatology didn't cover much, uh, much else. Challenges with infants, the little baby in arms. Everybody expects an absolutely perfect, symmetric baby, perfect skin, no moles, no growths, uh, uniform pigmentation, uh, smells good, five fingers on each hand, five toes on each foot. So the perfection stuff, when anything goes wrong, double anxiety. The whole family stuff. Next topic here, this predictive biology. You don't know it, but that's what you practice every day. When somebody shows you a funny-looking mole, they say, and you, you know it's a funny-looking mole. You know today it's not a melanoma. But what they're asking is, what will this be in five years? Should you cut it off to make sure I do not get a melanoma? 
and there they are, they're 25, they'll be 30, and you say, keep an eye on it, or whatever. How about you look at a two-year-old with a congenital nevus, and you say, don't worry, when little Timmy's 42, it won't be a melanoma. You just can't do that. Nobody can. So the predictive biology is really tough. Oh, and I'll point over here for those of you. That's called predictive biology. But it really is what you used to do. When I started in practice, it used to be, well, is this cancer or not? Now we're supposed to be 10 times more sophisticated. And I'm going to talk right now about procedures because guess what? A little tiny biopsy on a 40-year-old or a 20-year-old is no big deal. But a little biopsy on a 20-month-old, that ruins your day. It ruins the mom's day. It ruins the baby's day. It ruins a lot of days. So a couple little survival tips on procedures in children. Oh, infant children, by the way. I'm not going to do the procedures yet. Procedures. If it's a toddler, it's all the same stuff except fights like a wild cat. The closest I came to getting my nose broken was a cute little baby. Well, no, this, I actually had it broken, but that was basketball. But was a little tiny Adidas sneaker swung with absolute fury while mom was holding down the shoulders and I was doing some little minor thing. And that you could feel the air move. And I was like, boy, if he'd connected, I would have been out. <laughs> he's like 16-month-old kid. I know him now. He's 16 years old. So the teen and school-age challenges. Now you've got a 12-year-old. Now you've got a 16-year-old. Mom or dad or grandma want you to freeze that wart. 12-year-old doesn't want the wart frozen. They want the painless thing. They've been there before. No, we're getting this done today. No, you're not. <laughs> yes, you are. And you're sitting there thinking, am I in this room? It's a, it's a different fight. And of course, well, I've got, an issue. I've got a choice for you later on when we talk about some other things. And these people, they're 12. They deserve autonomy. Sometimes you've got to just sort of stand up and take the kid's side to say, no, no, little, you know, yes, he's got bad acne. He won't have his blood tests done, and we're going to have to try something else. And it's, uh, it's tough to stand up to an angry mom, an angry grandmother on the side of a 13-year-old of whatever issue. So have to, these are all, nobody ever explained this ahead of time before you went to PA school. I always thought it was medical care. Instead, they send all these people to see you. I deliberately didn't fix the typo on here. It says, you have a survival tip here. Guess what? Parental anxiety isn't truly reality, but it's spelled realty. Because that's another thing you're dealing with now with every age group, realty, the housing meltdown, people can't sell their houses, they're losing their jobs, and that's reality too. So when they haul somebody in, whatever age, and say, do this before I lose my health insurance, my job. So... The word anxiety is not just about parents, it's about the whole world, it's out, in the, it's, out, it, it's out there. Oh, and the anxiety about whether the soccer game is going well. Uh, other problem, oh, he was right. So you can't know everything, okay? I don't know everything. I did my pediatric residency, I do my dermatology, I still refer people to children's hospitals to have things done, investigated. I can't know genetics, I can't do pediatric plastic surgery. You've got supervising physicians. You've got to read. You've got to learn. You also have to know when to punt an eye. Boy, that's tricky. That is tricky, tricky, tricky. This button. I'm sure I'm the only one. And I decided not to put in, uh, so refer, I decided not to put in the typo where it says reefer. <laughs> so now I will put on now I'm going to talk about some procedure tips. Young, dumb, me, I was going to do a little scabies preparation, a toddler, child probably just had eczema, I'm scraping a few little papules. I had my standard treatment, maybe a burrow, a papule, and I'm scraping with a number 15 blade. And the toddler jerks, I think it was a his, hand away, and there's blood, and the earth opened up, and I was like, oh my goodness, I just slashed a toddler with a blade. <laughs> <laughs> Good news was I hadn't. I uh, just had that cracked, fissured hand thing going on. Blood 
pretty significantly. And I said, last time there's a scalpel around a toddler. So if you're doing a KOH, you know, I see some people do them with a little scalpel. That's great on somebody who cooperates. I use two slides. If you're doing a KOH on a scalp, two slides, okay? And you might as well do a bacterial culture at the same time because a carry-on is a secondary infection, is an extreme inflammatory response. So you're going to do the culture. You're also going to do a fungal culture because the KOH yield isn't quite high and specific enough. And yes, it's extra lab time, but when the kid is two months down the road and still has some lymph nodes and still has hair loss and everybody's mad and they won't send them to school or daycare, you just want that one month lag time already done last month. It saves time, saves everything else. So add your fungal culture right at the initial visit with the, gee, I wonder if this oh my goodness, it's a child with possible tinea of the scalp. Uh, might as well go ahead and do the lab early on. I say here, boy, that's so tricky. I say here, eschew the, now that's not my fault. This pointer is uh, driving us crazy here. I say eschew the woods lamp, okay? Back, if I'd written a book when I was 30, 20, yeah, 20. I would have said, if you think a child has tinea of the scalp, darken room, get out your woods lamp, and tinea of the scalp glows in the dark. And won't that be exciting? You can make the diagnosis too sweet. And I see people coming from emergency rooms and they say, oh, well, it glowed under the wood lamp or didn't. I don't care. Because 30 years ago, most scalp fungal infections in children were microsporum canis, which does indeed glow in the dark. By the way, microsporum canis also found in cats, canis dog, but it's also in cats, felis. Now the demographics of that infection have changed entirely. 95% of fungal infections are trichophyton tonsurans, does not glow under the woods lamp. So if it glows or not, I don't care. What does glow under the woods lamp is serum, so if they've got bacterial infection and they're oozy, and who doesn't? Or if they've got just an inflammatory response to fungus and they're oozy, it's going to glow under the woods lamp. And also little tiny threads and fibers glow under the woods lamp because the not only white but bright detergents actually have fluorescing agents to make your fabric pop under the fluorescent lights and it glows under the woods lamp. So you're going to be make, making false negative calls. Use the woods lamps for other things. We'll talk about that later. On a scabies prep, we use in our office, we've got some old dull curettes. And if you don't have old dull curettes, you can take one and make it dull with some emery board. And it's nice for scraping burrows and papules. You've got to find the burrows, you've got to find the papules, and use that because you're not using a scalpel. Or you're going under the fingernail with a wooden applicator stick or a toothpick because when the little kids scratch, they're harvesting eggs, they're harvesting little chipped up broken scabies. That's one reason you scratch, because it beats the little pieces. You know, it's like if you bit them, you could bite them in half maybe. So underneath their nails is a several day scabies prep and you just take that oogie out from under their nails and look under the microscope and you see a couple of chipped in half scabies, you're done. I don't do that much because nobody comes in at 18 months without a mom or a dad or two brothers. You've heard this already from me before. So some of these non-patients are going to have scabies and they cooperate better. So I do the scabies prep of the mom or the dad because they've got it too. The times you have to do surgical procedures or biopsies on children, never fun. Maybe it's why I'm not a full-time pediatric dermatologist, because everything is 10 times harder. How do you figure this out and make it less bad? You're going to have to sort of figure out who's going to be the best person to be in the room. Is it going to be grandma and mom's going to cry in the waiting room? Some, I had the best assistant I had was a mom. She held the baby. Everything worked fine. The tears streamed, but she was steadfast and good. So you've got to figure that out. We have great topical anesthetics now that really ameliorate the pain of the injection if you're going to do a biopsy. For goodness sake, use them. It's worth the time. 
okay? Why do something horribly traumatic on a kid and you and everybody else? Just do that and choose your site wisely because you don't want it to show that biopsy. And a five-year-old is going to be showing when they're 35 and get married. All right, whole new topic now. Everybody comes in with birthmarks and it's like, oh no, great, they want to know about this. And the terminology is really, really, really difficult and tough. It's just hard as heck. You gotta learn it, you gotta unlearn it because the word nevus is used for so many different things. Nevus is the Latin word, just means birthmark, okay? So here it is used for a vascular lesion, all right, nevus flamius, pigmented lesion, the congenital nevocellular nevus, uh, an epidermal nevus, which is just a malformation of the epidermis, nothing wrong with anything else, not pigmented, nothing. And then a nevus sebaceous, which is too many oil glands, sweat glands, no hair follicles. So how do these all hang together? Well, you gotta learn the meaning of the terminology and unlearn a little bit of it. And there are nevocellular cells and nevi without nevocellular cells. It's, whoever figured it out annoys me. So nevocellular cells are pigment cells gone astray. They're supposed to migrate out to the dermal epidermal junction, hand their pigment to the epidermal cells, and cooperate and collaborate with the keratinocytes. They instead sort of clump up at the dermal epidermal junction. They make their pigment and keep it to themselves. Benign, benign, benign. Then they grow and proliferate down in the upper or even down into the lower dermis. And sometimes the pigment fades. So the classic thing is you get, a, let's say this is not a congenital nevocellular nevus, but you see the little junctional nevus, the little flat tan thing or brown. Then with... Um, Adolescence, the hormones make it grow thicker, darker. Uh, it gets elevated. Then it's also down in the dermis. That's what makes it grow up. And then when they're 28, they say, I used to be brown and now it's white. What happened? It's pale, flesh-colored. The part at the dermal epidermal junction, which mostly makes the pigment, has faded down. That's the lifespan of a standard mole. Starts as a junctional nevus, turns into a compound nevus, finishes his life as the little tiny unpigmented stick-out nevus that we call an intradermal. It's just dermal, not, not compound, derm, dermal and dermal-epidermal junction. So when a child is born with a pigmented, elevated, those therefore are compound nevi, uh, congenital nevus, it's not a rare event. That's why you're going to be seeing them. One out of 100 children have them. Most of them are small, 10 millimeters or under. Some are mediums, and of course, there are the rare giant ones. We'll talk about those one at a time. The small and medium ones have some unquantified risk of being a melanoma later in life. Make up a number. Is it as high as one in 500? No way. One in 5,000, maybe. One in 10, I don't know. One in two, nobody knows. There is an ongoing study to try to calculate lifetime risk of transformation of small congenital nevocellular nevi and medium into melanoma. Indeed, they happen, because you'll see them in a 40-year-old. You cut it off. They say it's been there forever. They got the pigment change. They've got, you cut them off. We don't know. Watchful waiting is what we do in children. For a while, it was fashionable to send them all to plastic surgeons and cut them off. That's, pro that's probably not right. Uh, and you can excise them in the late teens. And here's why. There's a picture. It's sort of classic. Survival tip. Don't listen to mom. Don't listen to grandma. They somehow think that you can magically take this off. No scar. No big trauma. Oh, go ahead and cut it off because that way they got the little scar on their shin and it doesn't show and they don't make fun of him or her in the playground. And here's the problem. Children's skin's very high in elastin. So it's nice and stretchy. There are no wrinkles. You excise the nevus. The specimen gets small. You've seen this. It goes, Gleep. and then the defect gets big. And you say, wait a second. I drew my little ellipse. I cut it out and now it's 
half again as big as I expected. What's that all about? Oh, and by the way, it's going to pooch a little bit more. So then you're going to close it under a lot more tension than you anticipated, and then they're going to get a spread scar, and then they're mad at you about forever. And you're going to live, you know, I have the, the, the pleasure of living in a small town, the same town of 100,000 people for 22 years now. So you, I don't want, you know, let's say I only make 10 people a year, 100 people a year mad at me out of 8,000 office visits. Well, that's only 2,200 people who hate me along with their families, <laughs> which is everybody, okay? So I'm a big risk avoidance person. Obviously, there are changes in these which make you have to excise them, all right? They get a dark spot within them. Well, you watch it, but you don't watch it too much. And I take the uh, opportunity to refer them when they're beyond my ability. But they, you know, they still have to, you still have to pay attention to them. I actually did not include in here a talk on melanoma in children because it is supposedly so rare. It is increasing in incidence. The published data say it's one in a million of children 15 and under. But you still have to look. You can't play statistics and answer the phone and say, I understand your child's got an irregularly uh, margined, dark, pigmented lesion that's changing, that's bigger than a pencil eraser, but it ain't a melanoma because it's only one out of, what, one in a million under 15. I've seen three in my 22 years, one in a five-year-old, one in a seven-year-old, one in an 11-year-old. So you, and I haven't seen three million kids, so you have to look at each one individually. So moles, they matter. The large congenital nevi, you might go your whole career without being the primary person to see them. You might see them in the middle of their surgical procedures. I've sent a few people off. The so-called garment nevi, where it covers a whole shoulder, where a cape would cover, or down an arm, a sleeve, a buttock, those children have a 12%, that's the published data, and there's nothing really quite newer than that, but it's very high. Uh, risk of melanoma. And it's not as though you're going to get to retire before they get their melanoma. It's in the first uh, two decades, so before they're 20. And these arise deep in the dermis. Uh, they don't sort of stand up and do that nice radial growth phase, slow onset that you see in your adults with melanoma. Um, so that's why you're going to want to refer them away. So it happens in the first two decades. And of course, if you think about the surgical uh, risks and the scarring issues, you know, but I saw somebody, a, a teenager not too long ago, who had had 22 surgical procedures to remove the vast majority of his garment nevus. They'd, been ta they'd happened up in Chicago, they've moved down to my town. So that's what happened. That's this is what you see when the child is first born. And you say, oh, my goodness, it's a child with a garment nevus. And that's beyond the skill of anybody except a pediatric plastic surgeon at a children's hospital, at a referral center. And you'll also see them large and a little bit less dark and a little bit less dramatic uh, on a scalp or a head. And they, I've got a little 15-year-old that I sent over when she was two and she's got about half a head of hair, which, and she's a survivor, delightful kid, who's able to cover the rest of her head with the half of the hair that they left her. So those are pigmented lesions, congenital, nevus, cellular nevi. I'm going to talk about vascular birthmarks, and then we're going to have a question and answer stuff, because I tend to go jabber, jabber, jabber. And those are the two major things you'll be seeing well, no, the birthmarks, not inflammatory dermatoses. And I'll let you do some questions for five minutes after this, and then we'll go on to the rest of the display. So vascular lesions are actually more common than pigmented lesions. So they're divided into two groups, the hemangiomas that generally are not present on the first time at birth, and then they arise, they get thick, uh, they get elevated, they get darker, and then later on they involute. 
So the others are the so-called vascular malformations that the child is born. They're much rarer, and you see them in great, you know, I mean, they're there. The whole leg is covered with uh, purple vessels at birth. The cutest marmorata sort of pictures, too, also. So far and away, you will see the superficial uh, infantile hemangiomas and or the deep ones. And we're not going to go over this a step at a time, but it's available for you to sort of see the algorithm for uh, and, and the way to differentiate them. That's uh, a not good picture of a deep uh, lesion. Here's a good picture of a... Uh, that, uh, this is not a port wine stain. This is an infantile hemangioma that's in its growth phase. You're, of course, we'll talk later about the fact that this is near an eye. Uh, this is sort of standard issue. These people come in, they're worried. The poor mother gets accosted at the checkout counter. Did you use drugs when you were pregnant? Is that why you've got that? Then they cry because people are so rude. So that's your standard issue, and those generally just involute. They do not require treatment, laser treatment, uh, whatever. Evolving, that's an evolving field. That will skip. And this is later on. This is an axilla. And this is what you look forward to seeing because then you can say, oh, look, it's involuting. This used to be entirely reddish purple and lobulated. And these areas in the center are where it used to be entirely livid and elevated. And you say, this is great because now it's starting to fade and fade down and it'll flatten down. And no, we don't cut these off. And you just have to be patient enough to just sort of watch them go away. You've all seen this, right? Yeah, thank you. So, other question. Okay, the mother, somebody else says, now my child, grandchild, has this. How do you know that's not in the lung or the liver or some other place? And the answer is, you worry about midline back lesions having a spinal dysraphism, and the beard area, you worry about, better not do that gesture, feedback, uh, you worry about uh, airway obstruction and deeper tissue being involved with vascular lesions, the esophagus, whatever, and airway obstruction and visual axis obstruction are both medical emergencies. Uh, those children uh, who get an eye occluded by the rapid growth of a periocular um, he deep hemangioma, if it's, the dogma is if it is blocked for a 24-hour period, that they will indeed be able to have a retina that works, but the dogma says their visual cortex will not respond to signs later, and they will henceforth be blind, even though they could have had a functioning eye. So somebody called me not too long ago, one of our pediatricians, and said they had a baby, and they had a nasal, uh, relatively deep angioma that was growing very quickly and uh, had blocked their, uh, their midline vision. And I said, that's just great. You know, put them in a car and take them to Indianapolis, Chicago, wherever, because uh, this needs evaluation by a pediatric ophthalmologist. It needs uh, uh, intensive treatment because just to sort of play around with it. The pediatrician was smart enough already. She already knew this, first of all. And second of all, just wanted to check with me. And uh, third of all, the child turned out fine. Another algorithm about when to do this. Fascinating story. I'm sure you're 99% of you are aware of this, but I'd be remiss to not mention it. Propanolol for these deep hemangiomas. It's the feel-good story of the late two double aughts because the, we've typically treated children with the deep growing lesions, airway area, eye, uh, the ones that are causing systemic problems with systemic steroids or intralesional steroid injections with doses of the intralesional that were so high they got systemic side effects anyway. There was a child that was not responding to the systemic steroids 
And in fact, it grew so large that the cardiac output was, the child was having high output cardiac failure. And because of that, you know, couldn't nourish the brain, the lungs, the muscle, and was just pumping all the blood to this vascular lesion and was put on propanolol, good old Indorol. And even though for months the steroids hadn't changed this, in three or five days, the propanolol stopped the progression and flattened down this. There's some great pictures in this article. And it has, they were smart enough to figure out that it was probably the propanolol, which is inexpensive, uh, you know, relatively safe. And they tried it in their next few patients with large, growing, deep uh, infantile hemangiomas. And sure enough, they involute. So uh, this is something worth knowing. Don't just say, oh, don't, you know, don't worry, we just watch these. And in fact, that axillary lesion that I showed you earlier that was sort of big and involuting, that's nice, but it's at the point now where I might consider putting a child like that on the propanolol. I've had two that I've done that on. First one I did as an outpatient, and that was foolish. Uh, now I admit them to the hospital. You get them started because they can get respiratory problems. They can get low blood sugar. Uh, and it's easier to start them for a few days in the hospital and send them home just on oral propanolol. It's a great story, great accidental story. Sturgy Weber syndrome is a port wine stain in the first uh, uh, fifth nerve branch. If you get involvement of the eyelid and all that, then you can have both neurologic problems as well as uh, ocular problems like glaucoma and other problems. Uh, this is in a problem. You treat it with uh, one of the tunable dye lasers early. Uh, that's for the color, obviously, and the, uh, they also need referral to pediatric ophthalmologists and pediatric neurologists because they're also subject to uh, seizure disorder. This child has got, for sure, uh, one and two, and I really can't tell, I think, probably the third branch uh, of the fifth nerve here, but I don't know. So that child is truly at risk for Sturgey Weber syndrome. Here's a child who is not. Again, the parents expect this perfectly beautiful normal baby, and it is a perfectly beautiful baby, and except for this vascular problem. And no, won't have neurologic problems, and no, won't have eye problems, but you're going to send them to somebody who has a tunable dye laser anyway, because these pink, slightly ectatic vessels, they don't look so great now. And here's what happens if you don't treat them, okay? With time, they become more ectatic, and then you see them from two blocks away because they've got this purple thing. So this poor fella, if he'd been born in 1985, would have this treated and would have had this purple problem. Epidermal nevi, they're just warty, linear, just an epidermal disorder. They're often linear, and uh, if extensive, there is such an entity called the epidermal nevus syndrome. This is one of your problems. How do you know? Because associated with um, musculoskeletal abnormalities, but I've never seen it. I'm glad I haven't. But that's just sort of a classic epidermal nevus. And then how would you tell that from linear lichen planus or linear uh, psoriasis? Well, you do a biopsy. And in fact, it's hard to tell. So I'm going to stop here. I actually meant to stop earlier and ask you to ask any questions you might have. We'll set aside five minutes for pigmented lesions and vascular lesions because I'm supposed to stop at... What time? Three fifteen. Okay. So, does anybody have any questions about pigmented lesions or uh, vascular? Yes. Could you just make a comment about scalp nevi? Could I make a comment about scalp nevi? That's a great question. Thank you, because that's another oh my goodness, and it's still an oh my goodness with me. Um, you know, nobody wants to have a melanoma on the scalp. Nobody wants to neglect a melanoma on the scalp. I'm not 
truly aggressive on treat. I'm never aggressive on treating scalp nevi in children. And I mean like four-year-old, five-year-old. I do take them off on seven and nine-year-olds because they do get kind of dark, and that's about the age where I can feel comfortable treating them. The problem with scalp nevi is they tend to be just intrinsically broader, darker. They will so frequently have that pink in the middle and the tan rim around the margin. And they generally aren't all that irregular in their margins. Now, my son, John Farner, when he was a little kid, used to play with John Manning and John, well, I shouldn't be telling these names. Well, never mind. He's a genius now. So, 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 but the dad's, the, the, the father of my son's best friend growing up was sure he needed his Nevi off his scalp. So he would, under general anesthetic, as a three or four-year-old, and they sewed up his uh, scalp and took his nevus off. And sure enough, it was what we would now call a dysplastic nevus and truly benign. And the risk of that having turned into a melanoma during early childhood was almost nothing. So I do lots of looking at, I do lots of repeat visits in six months or sometimes even the first revisit at three months and then six months and then a year. And then eventually when somebody can't stand it, I'll take it off. The problem with the tension on the scalp is that when they get a spread scar, then they've got a hairless uh, area, and it, 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 it's tough. But the anxiety level is higher on scalp nevi, and I don't know if that's just simple folk wisdom or I'm missing the boat somewhere. So I try to watch, but I get pushed sometimes to take them off. Does that answer your question? Do you like taking them off? You like just saying, oh, please, for goodness sake, and you're right. How's that? Yes? I just wanted to ask your opinion on how you approach Spitz Nevi with parents so they don't freak out. I'm sorry, I didn't hear the approach uh, to approaching parents with Spitz, Spitz Nevi so they don't freak out. Ah, <laughs> that's a great question. Um, I actually have got Spitz Nevi later on in with the juvenile xanthogranulomas, so but I'll do it now. So Spitz Nevi, um, and I don't mean to bore people, but Sophie Spitz. Uh, was a pathologist in England, and even though World War II was raging, she published an article about benign juvenile melanomas. Okay, now that makes no sense at all. So, to avoid all, you know, wait a second, if it's a melanoma, how is it benign? And her explanation said these are moles that we excise from children and young adults that are horrific looking and frightening and worrisome under the microscope. They look for all the world like melanomas, but they act in a benign manner. So rather than, that's a wordful, so we call them spitz nevi. Red, sometimes pigmented, dome-shaped, firm, they grow rapidly, and you, number one, better have a good dermatopathologist, and number two, um, it is indeed. How do, you, how do you keep the parents from freaking out? Well, first of all, you can't. They just will. And uh, I think they all ought to be completely excised to give the pathologist a fighting chance. So, so a biopsy of something, you know, a punch biopsy out of a, a 7 or 8 millimeter lesion where they say it's probably a spitz nevus, I think that needs to be completely excised just for the safety and health of the child and the protection of the practitioner. But the, once that's the report, then it's just, you just say, this is what we see. This has been around for a long time. And then I like to, I see him back more frequently. I just keep saying the same story over and over. I don't just sort of say it and expect them to believe me. You know, I'm, the, I'm a really credible looking guy. And I tell them, I'm, you probably think that I'm doing something wrong, so please come back and we'll talk again. And there are some people who are simply so anxious, they're unreassurable. And then I always tell them, as egotistical as I am, I don't have an ego about you going to see another person and getting a second opinion. And sometimes if you bring it up, they're that much happier. And I don't mind them going to see somebody else. It's okay with me. I will tell you, I've got a young man who's 27 who has no ear because somebody took a spitz nevus off his ear once and it recurred and took it off twice and then sort of took off the funny recurrent spot the third time and the fourth time he saw me and the dang thing really wasn't a spitz nevus. So how's that? How's your anxiety level now? <laughs>
<laughs> you got to have a good dermatopathologist, and you got to be always willing to have somebody else help you with the call. Other questions? We'll move on. Nevis sebaceous are pretty darn common. They're often, they will often present as, oh, look, here's the injury from the little uh, scalp monitor or the forceps that had to be used for the delivery. Uh, they're almost always on the head and neck, mostly hairless patches, rough surface. As teenagers, when the hormones start waking up the oil glands, the, sebace the sebaceous glands and the nevis sebaceous, then start getting more elevated, papular pink, a little inflamed. They get little warty excrescences off them, not infrequently. I always say, please, let's take this off when they're in their late teens or 20s. They've adult, reached their full adult size. They don't have to go to the operating room. They can cooperate as outpatients awake. And uh, so you take off the little things that grow up. And within them, they can also get a little benign growth called a syringocystadenoma papilliferum, which I try to say at least once a week because it makes me happy. 10% um, of nevus sebaceous lesions are said to get basal cell carcinoma sometime later in life, and that's why the recommendation is to remove them all. And then you say, well, then you're doing 90% unnecessary surgeries for those lesions which won't get a basal cell carcinoma. If they got melanomas, you'd want them off, but a basal cell, and I take basal cells off 50-year-olds who've had left on Neva sebaceous. One was a nurse. One was an 82-year-old lady with this great big uh, basal cell up in her scalp. But you can always stall them, and then when the time comes, then you take them off. And again, it's the same issue, but why don't you take it off now? No, no, no. So here's a classic standard picture, the little red hairless patch. Um, you know, I'm old enough, I, I have enough credibility that it's the old thing. Um, that I don't generally do biopsies, but certainly a biopsy is an appropriate thing to do. Mast cell disease we're going to talk about briefly. Mast cells make histamine. They're distributed across your lung, your gut, and your skin. So when you get a little insect bite or whatever, it dumps histamine. And sure enough, there it is. Uh, it dilates your vessels. It gets red, and it stimulates itching. Sometimes they get dumb, just like nevocellular nevi, and they clump up, and you get little tiny mast cell clumps called mastocytomas. If you rub or stroke them, you get a blister where the histamine has been dumped out into the skin. So you'll get the history of, oh, uh, little binky gets the blister on the side of his or her hand, every couple months, and it's always in the same place. And then, of course, you're always thinking herpes simplex. Somebody's done a culture. No. Why would it always be in the same place? And then you, they urticate. So you take a little tongue blade or a little pen cap or something, and you rub it, and that's called derriere's sign. When you rub this little brown, yellow, red papular thing, please don't say derriere's sign. It's pronounced derriere. The derriere's sign has something to do with being a plumber and pulling your pants down and finding a mole. So that's Derrier's sign. You rub it and it urticates. And if it's just happened earlier in the week and the mast cells have not rebuilt their little supply of histamine, then they won't do it. So if you get a negative Derrier's and you say, oh, how long ago did this happen? And then they say, oh, yeah, just earlier on Tuesday kind of happened. It's like, oh, well, it's, then it's not useful. So most frequently, we see solitary mastocytomas, and they go away on their own by, I don't know, a few months hence or a year and a half hence, although they respond to just a little cotton applicator of painting on a class one topical steroid, so a little sample bottle of whatever your favorite brand is painted on there will often make them resolve quite quickly. It's called urticaria pigmentosum when they've got multiples, and we have a couple pictures here. So there is a rubbed derriere sign positive. Uh, so this is a knee, a thigh, shin, knee, big hivey reaction, always in the same place. And here's a child with multiple 
little ones. And they really aren't pigmented, but they are kind of a dusky brown. And if you biopsy them, they really don't have melanin in them. I don't know what makes them pigmented. And every one of those, if you rubbed and stroked it, would release histamine and swell with a positive Derrier sign. The problem is if they all urticate at once, guess what happens? You can have sort of an anaphylactic, shocky kind of picture. And non-specific non, um, mast cell degranulators like aspirin and narcotics uh, can put these kids at risk. So the parents of kids with urticaria pigmentosum have to know about that so they do not take them to the OR, they get a little bit of morphine sulfate to ease them down, and the next thing they know, the anesthesia person is running a code. So you need to go through that. Same thing with aspirin. So these two are red, and the rest have got that. It's a very distinctive little kind of funny background pigment. Now, if I showed you that picture and said, by the way, this child has scabies, you'd say, I can buy that. But no, this happens to be urticaria pigmentosum. It's the risk of pictures. Uh, JXG, uh, juvenile xanthogranulomas, you'll see sort of one or two of these. Dermal, uh, reddish, yellowish papules, you do a little biopsy. The histiocytes have picked up too much foamy, fatty kind of stuff. It's uh, pretty common, pretty benign. You will want to do a biopsy on these to make sure it's not a little something else, a little spitz nevus or a whatever. And if they've got three or more, you're worried about them getting JXG's intraocular or some other systemic issue. So I, I, I pretty much only see onesies. So there's one on a chin. And if you look at this little cute boy's chin and you say, boy, I don't want to do a biopsy on, on him because he's going to, speaking of, uh, well, any day. Speaking of fighting like a wildcat, you can tell that he's got some resolve when you come at his face with a needle. Um, but you'd, you would have to do a biopsy on that because that, for all the world, could be a spitznevis. It just happens to be a JXG. Spitznevi we covered. Microscopically scary. There's the one in the back of the ear. That wasn't my patient. Some of them do have pigment. They generally tend to grow pretty rapidly and then stabilize. I've got one coming in for surgery. Uh, next week sometime. She was told she has a keloid, but it's a, that. The histiocytosis family of things, pretty rare. I've seen, you know, I got kind of a regular old practice, and I've seen two of them in the last 10 years. Most common, these are Langerhans cells that do something goofy. It's not really cancer, but it can be an infiltrative, invasive, and fatal disease. So these kids get chemo. So the letterer seaweed is the much most common of them. And again, terminology is heck on here. And you get diaper area and scalp problems with these that don't quite look like seborrheic dermatitis, don't quite look like an ordinary diaper dermatitis. They get early eruption and loss of their deciduous teeth. So the kid I saw most recently had, was a year old and already had had uh, six, seven teeth in and had lost three. And the primary care doctor said, well, don't, don't worry about that. It's like, well, wait a second, that's nuts. Their teeth shouldn't be falling out yet. Eosinophilic granuloma is very rare. They erode bone because the Langerhans cells there do that. And Hans Schuler Christian Fortunately, I've never seen. They get bony lesions, they get exophthalmos, and they get diabetes insipidus because the cella turcica gets involved and it knocks off their pituitary. Rare, rare, rare. But you will might, or might could, as we say in Kentucky, uh, see letterer seaway, at least at a conference. How's that? So this just is sort of a really weird-looking uh, scalp dermatitis. It's definitely not seborrheic dermatitis, and sure enough, this is what if you saw it in an adult, you'd say, well, that's not even regular seborrheic dermatitis in an adult. I'm thinking reticulo, multicentric reticulohistiocytosis or something. And again, not your standard diaper rash. There's just something a little bit more infiltrative and weird there. And of course, 
you're not going to walk in and biopsy in the first visit, but if it's completely refractory for, de for to decent treatment with good parents, you're going to think doing a biopsy. Facial lesions, you're not going to miss that. And that could be either letter or seaweed or one of the his, uh, uh, his well, that, that's that. Pigment, you know, it's, oh my goodness, it's a child is a tough enough one. And sometimes I walk in and I pick up the chart before I walk into the room and I say, oh my goodness, another pigment issue. Everybody wants uniform color. They don't want extra dark. They won't, don't want extra light, whatever. And they're harder, harder than the Dickens to fix. In a child, it's even worse. So so-called Mongolian spots, dermal melanocytosis, really, really common. Uh, more common in people of African ancestry, uh, Asian and Mesoamericans than Europeans, typically on sacrum back, but you can see it on hands, feet, you can see it anywhere. These are melanocytes that never quite made it out of the subcutaneous fat in dermis up to the dermal epidermal junction. So they sit down there and they've got that classic slate gray pigment of blue nevi, all right? But they're much more uh, broadly based. Your goal, don't look at it and say, oh, I see you've been whacking the back and butt of your child, okay? These do resolve. Don't accuse people of child abuse who have not so done. So this is a nevus here, but and it's hard for you to see. This is a diffuse sacrum thing there. Going to skip over nevus of Ota. Nah, I'll go fast. This is an African gentleman, but it's a little more common in Asians. It's dermal melanocytosis on the face, forehead. It can also involve the sclera. Responds nicely to uh, Q-switch Druby laser, thank goodness, because it used to be pretty disfiguring. Oh my goodness, it's a child, and they want me to count and decide about cafe au lait spots, and the biopsy's not very helpful unless you, oh my goodness, send it off for what? electron microscopy to look at the size of the melanosomes and how many are there and what size are there and are they just little freckles and you say well it's in 10% of normal kids 10 to 20 will have a cafe au lait spot all right and of course the reason we worry about it is associated with neurofibromatosis and some other syndromes so here you are trying to look at a youngish child and decide if they've got some other syndrome or else the difficult life of one with neurofibromatosis. Uh, you can look at this at your own uh, leisure. Here is a child who actually does have neurofibromatosis and the axillary freckling will often show up later, but he is fortunate enough just for the picture to show us a cafe au lait and a cafe au lait. So they've already got two out of six and then little tiny freckle speckles up in the axilla here. And of course, the neurofibromas and all the other attendant problems show up later in life. The good news is there are now genetic tests, which are really fabulous. And these children I send right to the geneticist. It used to be that you'd hesitate and hedge. And now they've got genetic tests that can resolve this quickly. I'm presuming that everybody in the room here has seen one adult with neurofibromatosis. If and when you have, you don't forget. It's not a good thing. The elephant man did not have neurofibromatosis. So never tolerate people saying the elephant man had that. He had proteus syndrome, so you hate bad folk wisdom. So that's not a very helpful picture. You will, and I'm sure have seen Becker's nevi, which are interesting enough. They show up in school age and teens. And here's somebody with previously uniform normal pigmentation. And then they've got a hand or palm-sized macular big cafe au lait looking area of pigment, typically on an upper shoulder or back. And often then, first they show up with the macular pigmentation and then they get terminal hairs within them. And you know, what 15-year-old girl wants to have this big brownish thing that's darker than her regular skin there. And when she starts getting sort of uh, George Costanza hair growing out of it, then she's truly distressed. And the good news is, well, here's a picture of one. The good news is, and, and he's got a little more sharp demarcation at the inferior margin than I typically see. In fact, I might, well, never mind about that. 
So and he's got some hair up on the shoulder. And you can do standard hair removal procedures on the uh, area first, with paying attention to the background pigment, and then you can IPL or laser off the pigment. So you actually can make these people better. Ash leaf spots are pale areas of uh, in, seen in infants and children uh, where they don't have pigment. You don't always see it in the newborn nursery because children are born, they haven't been exposed to UV light, and they darken up over the next first few days of life. So they might take the child home and not see it, but here they are at a month saying, what's this pale spot here? And it's shaped ovate, similar life uh, size and shape to the leaflet of an ash leaf, and it's associated with tuberous sclerosis. And you see the, uh, uh, the depigmented area first here, little ovate lesion, upper back, shoulder, chest, and there it is, and you um, can then proactively send them to a pediatric neurologist because they show up with seizure disorders. The other findings in TS, tuberous sclerosis, periungual fibromas and perinasal fibromas uh, don't show up until the teen years. So you don't want the child to be having a seizure disorder that you've looked at and dismissed the little pale spot. This is one where the woods light helps, just like with vitiligo, because you can define that lesion, the ash leaf, you can see it much more dramatically, and you can also the same is true with vitiligo. So don't throw the woods light out. Just don't use it on the scalp of a child with um, uh, tinea of the scalp. Oh, these are the uh, perinasal fibromas. And everything that can go wrong will go wrong. So some pigment cells simply don't migrate out enough, so you've got some pale spots that are not well-defined and delineated. So nevus big depigmentosis. So it's just sort of an irregular small lesion. You can distinguish it from the vascular changes because you just press hard and you can bleed the, uh, the, the blood out of the area. We're going to skip incontinentia pigmenti. It's so rare that you won't see it. Oh, I hope. Newborn blisters. Here's the baby with blisters. That's kind of an emergency, too. And this is one where you're going to want some help. The list is relatively, sh it's longer than this, but these are the common ones. Herpes simplex. Uh, it says herpes zoster, but what I mean is varicella zoster. Okay, so if mom's got chicken pox late in gestation, sure enough, it can go across the placenta and infect the baby. Scabies early in infancy. This is truly not a newborn. Secondary syphilis makes the blood, the skin blister and peel off. Uh, I've seen two of those. Mastocytosis can present in the newborn nursery, and everybody else thinks it's herpes simplex. And you're, you're right, epidermolysis bullosa is inborn, and uh, most of the time you will be seeing epidermolysis bullosa simplex, which where mom or dad have it. So newborn blisters in the newborn nursery. You're just going to have to do a lot of homework there and a couple biopsies. If mom has pemphigus or pemphigoid, uh, her antibodies can cross the placenta and cause the baby to have blisters. Pustules, the usual stuff, staph, strep, candida. Uh, and there are two childhood entities, erythema toxicum neonatorum and transit neonatal pustular melanosis, which are kind of similar, although the ETNs mostly on the face and the transient neonatal pustular melanosis is on the hands and feet, and those are fun to say. Uh, and of course, kids get acne. Survival tip. Forget what this one is coming. Oh, when somebody shows up, a parent, and says, little Timmy's hair is sparse, or little Tina's hair is short and it doesn't grow long enough and it falls out and the pattern's funny, you just say, oh, this is my last day at work. I'm going to culinary school. <laughs> the differential diagnosis and treatment of this gets too long for this talk. So, sorry, I'm not going to be able to tell you what to do with children who've got sparse and falling out hair. Subdermal masses, same problem. It's the same differential diagnosis as an adult, 
but when you're dealing with midline lesions, you have to worry about deeper structures, face, anterior neck, midline back. The thing that is on the scalp of a 40-year-old, and you say, oh, that's a pilar cyst, I can numb it up and take it off. But what's on a 12-year-old, you better make sure they do not have a meningioma. So when I'm looking at the scalp of a child and with a growth or a bump there, I want to have an MRI before I start looking at uh, brain, because I just am not built for that. So a midline sacral dimple, you're worried that that child has a uh, spinal dysraphism. Same thing if they've got hair in the midline lower back. They call that a fawn tail for some reason. Children are not adults. You've got this history. They've developed. They've grown up. Their skeleton has formed. With children, you don't know what's going on. So you really do have to be much more cautious. I've got about five more minutes. I promised two other topics, urticaria in children, and it's all the usual suspects, okay? Pollens, foods, it's much more frequent to uh, uh, have infections cause them, have foods cause them, uh, or medications than adults. And of course, you have to think about Henoch-Schirmlein purpura, gets talked about much more than it gets seen. Uh, you see it in lupus and juvenile uh, inflammatory arthritis. We check in my office. I don't do this yet, this anti-FCE stuff. I'll get back to you about that later. CBC, SEDRATE, or CRP, uh, an ANA, a rheumatoid factor, and RAST levels. We'll skip that. Survival tip, I say never use steroids on urticaria in children. And the reason I say never, because it's like, what? I mean, you really can't bail people out. I think it always makes it worse, and people use them, and they're happy to use them, and then they underuse their uh, antihistamines, and when they come off the steroids, they're back in your office, and they're covered with hives, and they're all panicky, and they haven't been using their antihistamine. So if you really want to make sure things go badly, start them early on on some steroids, and they won't use their antihistamines because it's hard to dose children with meds. They work so fast and so well that they undermine the antihistamine use. Photosensitivity is not uncommon. In fact, the most common photosensitivity problem I see in children is topical sunscreen allergy. And some of the agents actually will stimulate photosensitivity. So if, when that happens, and it's not common, but it happens enough that you'll see it, I like, to, um, I like to use the sunscreens that have zinc or titanium as their uh, effective agents, because nobody gets uh, broken out with that. The PMLE family, there's a series of funny terms that we use. And they're just little tiny sores that you get on noses and cheeks and children grow out of them. And you just got to keep them inside a little bit. I don't recommend just that brand, but any of the ones that have zinc and titanium dioxide. If parents bring in pictures of anything, I just most recently saw a photosensitive kid with pictures. That's why I put it on this slide. Always look at the pictures. Bad quality, good quality, look at the pictures to respect them. And yes, you might well see erythropoietic protoporphyria. I've seen three cases. These kids go outside and they squawk because they feel so sensitive and tender and burny with light. So over a busy practice career, you might well find it. Shows up in infants and toddlers. They always turn red and sting. Here's the lab test to order, and there's the CPT code to make sure you get the right test. And in fact, it is the same test that you order for lead poisoning. So if you get a positive test, you have to also test them later for lead to make sure that you're not misdiagnosing. Crying exists. Deal with it. Expect it in the kids. Mom sometimes will cry. Dad's not so much. You can cry in your office, not with the kid. I'm going to skip quickly over the infections because that's probably been dealt with somewhere before. 
children do get chronic recurrent herpes simplex infections. Yes, you can use oral, chronic, or intermittent acyclovir. Comes in pediatric doses and calculate the dose and treat them. Infections, the kids do get onychomycosis. MRSA in kids, this is the dogma. IND constitutes proper and correct thorough treatment for all abscesses. That's really what they say. That's what I was taught in medical school. That was a long time ago. And guess what? That's what they published in this article. And guess what? 110 out of 110 pediatric infectious disease specialists put patients on oral antibiotics when they drain them because drainage just really isn't enough. Don't forget that SEPTRA is poor for group strep A and it's still around, everything ain't MRSA. And to decolonize your pediatric patients, you obviously do the mupiricin and the nasal antrum and you wash them either with chlorhexidine or you put in, this is the formula, just look it up, I won't read it out loud, whoops. I will read that you can, darn, okay? Either chlorhexidine or you can soak them in a tub with some Clorox and don't mix those two together because you'll stain the tub brown forever for some reason. Just a fun tip. Perianal strep exists. Hot tub folliculitis happens in kids. It can be not just in a hot tub. The little scrubby doodles are also potentially carriers of pseudomonas. So the little wubbies and the toys and the scrub doodles and the sponges can carry it. And besides the classic trunk flank folliculitis of so-called hot tub folliculitis, they can get tender papules on the bottoms of their feet. And they just don't want to walk and you put your hand on there and it's tender and you say, oh, that's from sitting in the hot tub, hot bathtub, the ample sweat glands in the feet open up, they dilate, and the pseudomonas gets in there and it hurts. So you can treat them with topical clindamycin or whatever you normally would treat hot tub folliculitis with and they'll get better. So don't forget that one. Hot tub folliculitis picture. Uh, I always say that no American kid has nutritional deficiency because we got all the multiple vitamins. It's really hard to do in America to get poor on that. Every kid with Perlesh, every mom or grandmother think the poor kid's got beriberi. But there is one that we see, which is zinc deficiency. All right? Looks like bad, bad diaper rash, bad acral rash of hands, peri, uh, perioral. And it looks like staffy, streppy kind of stuff. And you treat it and treat it, and they don't get better. The kids get grouchy as all get out. They either get or it's associated with diarrhea and... Oh, got the CPT code for which blood test to order. Kids really get cranky. So, you know, you're not going to mistake that as an ordinary diaper rash. That's an adult. And as a special bonus, the, we see this also in our uh, chronic alcoholics. We've just got our second chronic alcoholic little old lonely lady who's got massive zinc deficiency. One of them has uh, pellagra also, no niacin, and I don't know what the other one's pending. Gina's, Gina's going to find that one. So I'm done with my talk, and I don't know if we have time for questions. Do we have time for questions? Couple questions? I think I put everybody to sleep. Oh, I know what the question is. What's the score in the World Cup? All right, class dismissed.